bad news, some good news today. Are you ready? Which one would you like? The bad news or the good news first? The bad, huh? Let's go with the good first. No, it doesn't matter to me. Let's go with the good news. Okay, here's the good news. The good news is, no matter who you are, where you are, God knows who you are, and he knows where you are. And no matter what you think you can or do not have in bringing to the table in the equation that God wants to do and use in your life, you have all that is necessary because God, when he chooses to select you, will do so not according to man's observation, but only his. You see, I'm convinced there are a lot of people today who somehow, for whatever reason, in this what I call false humility, have a tendency to believe that they are sort of unnoticeables. They are unrecognizables. They are in an obscure place. They don't have a whole lot to offer. They don't have a whole lot to give. They don't have a whole lot to present when it comes to being used of the Lord. And so as a result of that, they don't see themselves in the potential that God sees in them. And as a result, they do not present themselves in any capacity for any reason so that God can use them. I'm convinced that God knows who you are and where you are, and God judges not on man's standard, but on God's standards. And when God decides to use you, he will use you, irregardless of your education or your experience or your talent or even your good looks. That's the good news. The bad news is there are some of us that are a little bit egocentric. We somehow believe ourselves to be better than what we really are, and we think that when it comes to, to, to divine selection, that we are God's favorite, that we are God's choice, because you see, we have a, the right education, we have the, the right experience, we have the right talent, we have been there, we've done that, and so as a result of that, we see ourselves as more than capable to handle or to do whatever God deems necessary to do, and so we present ourselves to God, and the reality is that more than likely, God will pass those people up simply because they are more self-sufficient than they are God-reliant. For God does not choose man based upon man's observation, but based upon a divine observation that sees past the appearance. He sees past the, 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 the outer exterior of a person, and he sees and he judges us based upon the condition of our heart. For it is the heart that God uses in order to determine our usefulness to him. And if your heart is right, then God will choose you and he will use you even in the most unexpected ways. Even if you are in a, a distant place, people don't, don't even recognize your ability nor your potential. They might overlook you for whatever reason. And think, well, you know, there's no way in the world that God can use that person because they're either too young or too inexperienced. They don't have enough education. They don't have enough talent. And, and maybe they're not as good looking as they need to be. And so as a result of that, we are just going to ignore them and we're going to look for someone else that is more pleasing to our standards rather than God's standards. And the end result is catastrophic when we make those selections or the determinations based upon human standards rather than on God's standards. I want to talk about divine selection this morning. We're going to learn about a young man. All of us know about him. His name is David, and he is tending his father's sheep out in a pasture. And uh, it is going to come time for God then to select a new king for Israel. 
And it's not by coincidence that he is not being considered at all in the, in the, the lineup that is presented to Samuel, the prophet that God is going to use in order to select that next king. And for whatever reason, his father, his own family members, did not see the potential of David in the possibility of him being God's selection and the one that God would use as the next king. And I'm convinced that most of us are somewhat like that. We don't see ourselves or picture ourselves being used by God in an extraordinary, spectacular, supernatural way. We just don't see ourselves in that frame of reference. But I'm here to tell you that if you see yourself in that way, more than likely you are the one whom God will select, not the other individual who see themselves as God's gift to humanity or to the church. And so I want to talk about divine selection for just a little bit because I think it's important for us as a church and as we sort of, you know, say goodbye to the old guy and, and bring a new pastor in. Because the good news is God has someone already prepared to occupy this place that I have had the privilege to occupy for the last 10 and a half years. He's already selected. He's already preparing. He's already in the process of making that person available for when that time comes. God's divine selection, he's already making that a reality in that person's life and may, may not even know who they are or when that's going to happen. Like I didn't, you know, 10 and a half years ago. Actually, it was almost 11 years ago when I received a letter from a man named Andy Anderson with Emmanuel Baptist Church on it. And I went to our mailbox in South Carolina and opened it, and when I saw it, I thought, Emmanuel. And the Lord said, this is where you're going to be coming. And I didn't even know Andy. I didn't know Emmanuel. I knew nothing about Emmanuel. God selected me for this position. I'm convinced of that and believe that. Or had he not have selected me, I would not have been able to have lasted ten and a half years. God's divine selection is not often even close to man's selection i mean i have long believed i'm not talented enough i'm not good looking enough i'm not tall enough i'm not strong enough i am i don't have the ability that is necessary i don't have any of the equipment or the talent or whatever is necessary to do whatever god would have me do much less pastor in this place for ten and a half years i had a young pastor recently told me he didn't know if he had enough strength to be the pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church you know what I told him I don't either were it not for the Lord's strength we would not be able to do anything or anytime we believe that we deserve this selection that God somehow bestows upon us we then become disqualified for that selection and then no longer become that who God is going to use in order to accomplish that which he wants to fulfill and in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see this beautiful, incredible man named Samuel who has been endowed by God to then appoint, if not anoint, the next king of Israel. And I want us to take a look at this divine selection process as we come to the close of our ministry together, as you begin to embark in a new ministry to help us understand that God already has your next pastor in mind. He's already selected. He's already preparing him. And your pastor search committee is praying in regard to that. And at some point, there will be this, this, this unity. There will be this togetherness where they... Are, 
equal with God will come to the terms and come to the conclusion that this is who God has selected as the next leader for Emmanuel Baptist Church. So how does that process work? Let's take a look at it. Number one, divine selection requires, first of all, conviction. It requires, first of all, conviction. Notice verse one. The Lord said to Samuel, we've already identified the fact a couple of Sundays ago that Samuel has already learned to listen to the Lord. I mean, when he was a young boy and he was tending to the, to the affairs of the temple and he was just a lad that he heard God speak three times and he was told it must be the Lord. And the Lord called him a fourth time and he said, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. And God spoke to him. And now Samuel has learned, he has matured in deciphering and discerning the voice of the Lord. God has been speaking and communicating to him all of these years now, and he's reached this mature level where he can discern and he can hear what God is speaking. And God speaks directly to Samuel, and he asks, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Why was Samuel in mourning? It was because Saul was not the king that he anticipated. A couple of chapters earlier, we learn in 1 Samuel that, uh, that Samuel was a part of the, the, the prophetic anointing of Saul as the king. He was a strong, strapping, handsome warrior type of a king. And there was so much anticipation and expectation as to how he would rule. But the reality is that Saul developed what we call a king complex in the sense that Saul thought that as king, he was not subject to any else's rule, much less God's rule, that he could do what he wanted, when he wanted, irregardless of what God has spoken. And as a result of that, he messed up, disobeyed God, and God said, I regret that I even made you king, dude. And so I'm going to choose for myself another king. And Samuel walked away from that encounter in the couple of verses at the end of the last chapter, he went away in mourning and grieving over the fact that his anointed king developed this king concept and decided that he would not obey the Lord. And he was in mourning. And here God says, stop your mourning. I have rejected him. But notice he says, I, he said, I want you to fill your horn with oil and go. I want you to fill your horn with oil and I want you to go. In other words, you have to rise up from where you are to go where I am to send you if we are to join efforts and you are to find the king that is to replace Saul. To move from where you are, to move to where God wants you to be in order to join God. You cannot go with God and stay where you are. You have to pick yourself up. You have to rise from where you are and go where God sends you. And notice what he says. He says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I will send you to rise and go where he is sending him. Samuel is to rise and to go to Bethlehem where Jesse would be. Notice he says, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I have provided. God is already in the process of working in young David's life so that when the moment happens, he will be ready to assume the throne that God wants to give him. I have provided for myself. Don't overlook myself. Because there's a lot of tendency to think that as a pastor, we are to serve the people. Don't misunderstand me. While we have a responsibility to serve the people, the pastor doesn't serve the people. The pastor serves the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. It is he alone whom we must please. Because many times, 
in leadership, you will find that the people will not want what God wants. And the leader must stand where God is leading and say, thus saith the Lord. And it's important to understand that your next pastor will be someone that will be not only prepared by the Lord, but will hopefully serve the Lord while he serves the people. But notice the conviction that takes place here. God has a plan, he has a process, and he has a person. And unless we begin with a conviction that, yes, God has a plan in all of this, God has a purpose through all of this, and God has a process, and through that process, he is going to send us the person that he has already designated and prepared for us that's a conviction and if you don't start from that conviction then there there's no second step beyond that there has to be the reality or the belief the understanding that God is preparing and that conviction is strong in believing that yes God is actively working in 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 replacing the leader that is no longer there and that God as a part of that process is going to lead us into that direction number two divine Selection requires not only conviction, but it requires caution. Notice what the passage says, and Samuel said, you ever had a conversation with God? He gives you a mission that's a little bit dangerous, a little bit uh, out of the ordinary. You recognize in advance when you hear the Lord speak into your life that there's going to be some danger or some difficulty involved. And so Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. He will kill me. In other words, Samuel was well aware of the reality that Saul was a jealous king. If you don't believe that, read most of the Psalms where Saul understood that David was God's next king and he was the one that God had anointed through Samuel and he was going to persecute him relentlessly. And as a result of Saul being and having and developing this king concept where he believed that he was above God and he could do whatever he wanted, more than likely, Samuel realized that in this king complex that Saul had, that more than likely he would try to kill the prophet of God. And he's saying, Lord, you're sending me into a dangerous place with a difficult mission, and I'm going to face someone who's not going to be kind to the message or to the mission that you're sending me on. And he said, and, and, and he, the Lord said, don't you love it when the Lord gives you now the same mission but he gives you something in order to accomplish that mission take a heifer with you and say i have come to sacrifice to the lord the sacrifice here is one which you offer a sacrifice and then afterwards you take that sacrifice you skin it and you prepare it and you fillet it and you barbecue it and so he's saying i want you to go into the temple and i want you to go to bethlehem and i want you to offer a sacrifice and after the sacrifice then have a feast have a celebration you see, it's not unlikely or uncommon for Samuel to come to Bethlehem in order to have such a sacrifice. So therefore, Saul would not think it suspicious or unnecessary. He would not be unrattled or maybe rattled by the fact that Samuel came. And so he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to have a sacrifice before you have the anointing of the next king. So take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. There's a man in particular that I want you to invite. His name is Jesse. He has, has a couple of sons, and I want you to invite him and his whole family to the sacrifice. And notice he said, I will show you what you shall do. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. The caution is that we must follow the Lord's leading, never our own. 
We should never take matters into our own hands and determine what we're going to do. We must seek to follow the leadership of the Lord specifically and intentionally, understanding that he is to guide us each and every step of the way. That caution is, is here, do not do anything, look, listen, and learn what my will is, and when I determine, I will show you at the proper time whom I will declare to you. He's going to communicate to Samuel who the next king shall be, and we must always be cautious to follow in the leadership and the footsteps of the Lord God himself. Divine selection requires conviction, caution, but also thirdly, consecration consecration notice verse 4 samuel did what the lord commanded and came to bethlehem he did what the lord commanded it's not uncommon for samuel to do that he was obedient he knew it was dangerous and difficult he knew it was going into the lion's den he knew that he was going to be facing saul and he was taking the sacrifice with him he's going into bethlehem and he did exactly what the lord had commanded him to do notice what happens as he enters into bethlehem the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said do you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves with me and come with me to the sacrifice. So what is he doing? He's inviting them to the sacrifice. He's inviting the elders of the city to come with him. It was, it was quite a, a spectacular viewing of Samuel. More than likely, Samuel had not been to Bethlehem since the last encounter he had with Saul. In the previous chapter, Saul had defied the Lord, had done what he wanted to do, and God had spoken through Samuel to Saul and said, you're no longer God's choice. He regrets even placing you on the throne. And so as a result of that, you are no longer his selected choice. In other words, you're no longer the one that he wants on the throne. There's going to come a new one who's going to follow after you. You no longer have the favor of the Lord. And he leaves. And I can imagine, as you can imagine, that the conversations began to flow throughout Bethlehem. It was a small town. You know, a lot of people don't realize that even though as big as Wichita is, it still operates like a small town. Doesn't it? Well, Bethlehem's a lot smaller than 750,000. And I can imagine the conversations that went after that encounter between Samuel and Saul. And everyone knew that the encounter that happened between Saul and Samuel was not a good one. So when they saw Samuel coming to offer sacrifice, they thought, well, what sin now has been committed? And they began to become afraid as to what prophetic utterance that Samuel would say to the people or why did he come? And so he said, no, no, I just came to sacrifice. So come with me, consecrate yourselves. And then notice, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Consecration simply means to separate oneself now, the consecration here is a consecration that is an outward cleansing. But I think it's more than just an outward cleansing. It's an inward cleansing as well. It's an outward manifestation of an inward practice. Consecration is incredibly important if we, if we hope to not only hear from God, but to be used by the Lord. For we cannot be used by the Lord with sin in our lives. There has to be a separation. There has to be a confession. There has to be a moment of consecration where we are removing whatever iniquity, whatever sin, whatever grievance is between us and God, not only before we come into the place of worship, but before we come into the presence of the Lord in order to hear from the Lord, to be used by the Lord in selecting the one who he wants as king or as leader. 
And so I urge the church and urge the pastor search committee to make sure that your hearts are cleansed, are pure, that your motives are proper, that your actions are right, and that holiness is a part of the process that you're involved in, seeking your heart and searching your heart. Somewhat like the psalmist said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because if your heart is not right and your spirit is not right, then how can you hear from the Lord? And expect his blessing. Divine selection requires conviction, caution, consecration, and fourthly, consideration. Consideration. Notice when they came, he looked on. Well, okay, when they came, that means the family. Now, what's happening here when they came? Let me just back up a minute. When they came, here's what happens. They, they, they consecrate themselves. They go into the place of worship. They sacrifice the animal. And now the animal is being prepared for the barbecue. I mean, that's, that's the good part. And I'm, I'm, I'm from Texas, and I'm waiting for the brisket. Okay? And uh, so, <laughs> nothing better than barbecue brisket. Anyway, making me hungry already. Is it time for lunch? And they're preparing the sacrifice for the meal. And so there's a lull between the worship and the sacrifice, and now uh, the, 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 the meal, the celebration. And in this moment of delay, Jesse is invited Samuel to his home. And no one thinks anything about it because they've gone to the temple or they've gone to the sacrifice and offered the, the, the sacrifice on the altar. And now that part is over. And Samuel hasn't given them any bad news. There hasn't been anything catastrophic happen. So everybody kind of relax, relaxes a little bit. And so then Samuel goes to Jesse's home. And I believe this is a private moment between Jesse and his family and Samuel. And he looked on Eliab, Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him or before me. It's interesting that, uh, that he looks at this, the eldest and he concludes, this must be the one whom God has selected. But notice the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue because I have rejected him. He looks at the oldest and he assumes this must be the one. What made him assume that? Not because he heard from the Lord, because he judged his outer appearance. He looked at his countenance rather than his character. And based upon his countenance, he said, this must be the one. And the Lord said, no, 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 he's not the one. But notice, for the Lord sees not as man sees. God doesn't look upon us as even the neighbor that's sitting next to you in the chair in this auditorium. The Lord sees us completely different than man sees us, or we even see each other. He said, man looks on the outward appearance. I mean, let's face it, I, I've learned on, you know, I mean, I've studied some of this, how to make a good impression in the first couple of seconds of meeting someone. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's all about appearance, isn't it? Body language and all of that. Because why? People are judging based upon the initial encounter they have with you on your appearance. And here God says, I don't judge people based upon man's standard of appearance or his countenance. But the Lord looks at what? At the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. When I was a student pastor decades ago, back then they called them youth directors. Anybody remember that? You're a youth director. You can tell how old I am. And um, some of you don't even know what that is. 
they call them youth pastors now, we were youth directors. And uh, we didn't have the title of minister back then. You were a youth director or a children's director, whatever it was. Anyway, so uh, I had a poster on, on my wall in my office, my little cubby that we, I call an office in the basement of the Ferguson Road Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And there was a poster with a sheepdog, and the sheepdog had hair over his eyes. You couldn't see his eyes. Oh, there was this big sheepdog. And the caption underneath it says, I always see better with my heart. Because sometimes we judge someone based upon what we see. And in our evaluations, those evaluations are often carnal and fleshly and deceptive. Don't always judge a book by its cover. I was talking to Donnie here a while ago and he was telling about his life group class. Right, Donnie? And, and the people that he invites to church and I said to him we're not looking for those kind of people we want lawyers and doctors and engineers and wealthy people you think I'm joking we once had a staff here like that we did we value people based on determined about what we see in them and what they can do for us Shame on a church or a pastor that ever has that criteria. God can use anybody anywhere that he chooses that has no talent, no looks, no money, no nothing. You look at the 12 that God chose, they were the most unlikely, that Jesus told they were the most unlikely people that would have ever been selected to be the 12 disciples. They were overlooked by all of the religious elite of their day because they were not chosen to be in the religious elite. They were fishermen and common, ordinary people. How dare God use common, ordinary people? Well, you know what? You're looking at one. Sure, the education, I have that. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, my doctorate is kind of like the W.A. Crystal said, he said that his doctorate's kind of like the, the, the tail on the rear end of a pig. It's curly, it's little, it doesn't cover up anything, and it doesn't look good. It's just there. A degree does not qualify anyone. Experience itself does not in and of itself. Those things are good things, but they don't make the knife. They may sharpen the tool, but they don't make the tool. They don't call the tool. They don't equip the tool. And we must consider in our evaluation that we must set ourselves aside, but consider to weigh the candidates based upon God's standard because only God can see the heart, not on countenance, but on character. Number five, divine selection requires cooperation. In other words, we've got to follow the lead of the Lord. Notice it says in verse 8, then Jesse called Abinab. I want you to, don't, don't miss that, Jesse called. Jesse's the father. Jesse called. He's not God called. He's Jesse called. And there are many, I believe, who are man called, not God called. And that's the reason they don't last. Not the only reason, but one of the main reasons. Sometimes it's because of poor choices that leaders make, and as a result of those poor choices, they disqualify themselves. And many, I'm convinced, want to make bad choices so they can become disqualified because they don't have the guts to quit. And Jesse called his son and made him pass before Samuel. He made him. 
Almost sounds to me like there's a little bit of resistance, isn't there? He made him. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Samuel heard from the Lord and said, no, not this one. Verse 9. And neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Seven of his sons passed before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. It's important that as you evaluate and you consider who God is choosing for the leader that is to replace your next pastor is that we must understand that we must pursue and investigate and study the candidates, but not settle on one until you have determined that he is the one who God has selected. And it is God who leads you in that selection process. Not really even the committee. The committee is to follow the leadership of the Lord. And as they present the candidate that they believe the Lord is bringing to the church, it's then based upon that that you as a congregation then determine, yes, this is, we believe, God's leadership. I remember when when Andy stood up here and you said, Brother Andy, you said, we believe the Lord is leading us to call Charles Boswell. Pretty much what you said. And the committee all confirmed it. And so you need to understand that there is a cooperation in this process where we are joining God in what God is doing. We don't come to God and write our agenda or our schedule or our calendar or our proposal or our candidate. We let the Lord do the leading. And he's going to more than likely lead to the most unlikely candidate in the most unlikely place in a little small town of South Carolina who had no idea there was an Emmanuel Baptist Church and had never heard of of it whatsoever. Cooperation. Number six, clarification. We have eight of them, so we got three more to go. Clarification. Notice verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet one, yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. Did you catch that? His dad presented all of his sons but one, how would you like to be overlooked by your dad and, and, and your dad not seeing the potential that is there if God were to select you? His dad didn't even bother to bring David to be a part of the, the entourage that would be placed in front of the prophet to be chosen by God. Why? He thought he was too, long, too young, too little, too unimportant, too unqualified, not gifted enough, not prepared enough. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel then said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. There's urgency here, but why did Samuel ask this, you ask? That's my question. Why did Samuel hear what the dad said? The dad said, he's, he's too young, he's too inexperienced, he's too little. He's a ruddy little redheaded kid who's out there tending sheep. He's not a warrior. But you see, Samuel had already heard what God had said, for the Lord does not see as man sees, but he looks outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel learned the lesson that God doesn't choose based upon man's standard. He chooses based upon God's standard. And he wasn't going to let that slide. He's going, no, 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 you need to bring David. We've learned the lesson. God's standard is different. So let's evaluate David as well and see what the Lord has to say. He's seeking clarification because God had sent him 
to Jesse in Jesse's home. Can you imagine the prophet who is there and he's, he's, he's in Jesse's home and all seven sons go by and the Lord said, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. I think that's seven times. And, 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 and Samuel's probably going, Lord, I heard you tell me to come to, you, to this house to evaluate Jesse's sons and I've seen all of his sons, so did I miss you somehow? Did I not understand was it one of those seven and I, I misspoke? I, it was some, you know, he's questioning the Lord. And then the Lord said, no, ask Jesse, do you have another son? And he said, you got another? He said, yeah, I got one more. And so it's important then in your search to find the next leader that God has for this congregation is to seek clarification to know through investigation in regard to, yes, this is who God has selected. Number seven, confirmation. Divine selection requires confirmation. And he sent and brought him in, presented him, and he was, notice, ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Wait a minute, I thought you said appearance doesn't matter. So why is David's appearance here? Well, he's ruddy. He, many believe he was probably redheaded, or some even think maybe he was red skin because he'd been out in the sun tending sheep in the hot sun all day or he was you know sort of a, a bronze tone about him doesn't really matter but he had this beautiful complexion he had beautiful eyes i mean when you're evaluating who you're going to call as as your leader who looks at eyes but notice he was handsome but I thought God said appearance didn't really matter, that character mattered rather than countenance. Well, here he's reminding us, as reminding those of us who read this, that while appearance doesn't matter, appearance don't hurt. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And the Lord said, notice the Lord said, arise. Remember, you can't go with God and sit where you are. You got to get up from where you are and anoint him. For this is he. God confirmed to Samuel that the one who was not present was now standing before him was the one that God had selected. And he got God's confirmation. Don't move forward until you have God's confirmation that this is the one he has prepared for you. Keep in mind that there will be some aspects about him you may not like. Go ahead. Take a long look. It don't get any better than this. I told you that the first Sunday I stood here. He may be ruddy. He may not be all that good looking. But it's the one that God wants to appoint. Wait for confirmation. Then lastly, the mind selection requires communication. You know, obedience communicates more than words. Anybody can say, you know, I, I follow the Lord. I obey the Lord. I'm a disciple of the Lord. It's not in what you say, it's in what you do. And he communicated his obedience and his faithfulness by doing what the Lord commanded him to do. And he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. There's a communication among the brothers. I can imagine as the, the, the brothers, the older brothers were there, their jaws dropped when they realized it was little... The baby of the, uh, you know, the, of the litter, the runt of the litter, who was the one that was chosen to be the king, the most unlikely, 
You, do you think the brothers had a little bit of issue with that? We don't know. But would you have issue with that? If the most unlikely runt of the group of the litter was the one who was chosen as the king, you're going, what? what's God doing here? And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from the day forward, from that day forward. The spirit of the Lord had fallen upon Saul in a couple of chapters earlier than this when he was anointed king. But through his king complex, the Lord was in a state of regret because he had made Saul king. And the spirit of the Lord did not remain on Saul because of his disobedience. But here we see that the spirit of the Lord is going to remain on David for the rest of his leadership. Doesn't mean he was perfect. If you know anything about King David, he made a few mistakes along the way. Being spirit-filled and spirit-led doesn't mean that you're perfect, doesn't mean that you're sinless, it doesn't mean that you aren't human. It simply means that in that you determine and find the grace that is needed to lead and that the Spirit of the Lord can still use you in humble dependence through repentance before the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord was upon David from that day forward. And notice, and Samuel rose and went back home. Samuel had done what God had told him to do and went about his activities as priest. My dad told me a, a story this last couple of days. They came to visit us on Thursday. He wanted, Mom and Dad wanted to be here today. They're watching us uh, via the Internet. And uh, Dad told me about a time when, uh, when uh, I was, we were in Brazil. And some of you know this. That I, I was raised in Brazil. I was a missionary kid, went over there when I was eight years old. Uh, and we lived uh, in, in a couple of towns in Brazil. And my dad was uh, sort of an evangelist and helped plant churches and that kind of thing. And anyway, um, we played soccer out in the streets. We didn't have a, a soccer field, so we played out in the streets. And, and um, we had a great time doing that. Um, put two rocks on one end of the street and two, two rocks on the end of the street as goals. And you, you, know, you, you play soccer out in the streets. And, and in, in any game, usually divide up, right? You have two people, one selected to be one captain and one selected to be the next captain, and you sort of, you know, do rock, paper, scissors and determine who goes first, and then the one who goes first picks what he believes to be the best soccer player in the, the guys that are standing there. And uh, so I was one of the captains on that particular day, and my dad, for whatever reason, who wasn't really a great soccer player, was in the lineup. And I'm his son. And... Uh, uh, when it came time for my selection, I selected one of my buddies who I knew was a great soccer player. And then the other captain selected another one, and I selected another guy that I thought was good. And I did not select my dad. About the fourth or fifth pick, my dad asked for a timeout, and he came over and he said, you remember me talking to you? I said, not really. He said, well, you remember what I told you? I said, no. He said, son, if you ever want an allowance again, <laughs> you will pick me on your next pick. What do you think I did? I picked my dad. Why did I overlook my dad? I knew he didn't play soccer very well. But had I not picked him, I would have missed out on a blessing called an allowance. Sometimes we have a tendency to be like that captain who's selecting people in a lineup, judging based upon appearance or ability, 
or talent or skill or what they think we think they can do for us. God doesn't choose that way. God already has in his divine selection process is already preparing the man that will stand in this pulpit in, in, in just a few months. And I want to encourage you as a church to join God in that divine selection process. To pray for your pastor's search committee. They are godly people who love the Lord and I believe will follow the Lord. Right, Mark? Who's the chairman of the pastor's search committee? And when they present that candidate, having prayed and God led and I hope and pray that you will pray as you vote because that's really the only vote we take as far as a pastor in this church is on the senior pastor. Follow the Lord. Trust in him in this divine selection process. You may not like everything about him. You might not like everything that he does. And every now and then he may make what the pastoral staff calls a bosism a faux pas from the pulpit because I don't read manuscripts. It's live. That in the, the dynamic of God's leading, God uses imperfect people to accomplish a perfect work. And in his time and in his way, he will have his way. Let's pray.